Why aren't I dead yet? Because I don't think I've completed the plan that God has for me in my life. I think we're put on this earth just to love everyone. To be a good person. To give money. <laughs> for music, that's my thing. It's about other people and relationships. I'd like to think that we're here because... I, I don't know. I, we gotta have a reason for... I have no idea that. Welcome to Seacoast this weekend. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us uh, right now from an off-site campus or on the internet or in a venue uh, here in this, uh, at this campus or podcast, wherever you might be. We're glad that you're along too. Hey, um, is it cold enough for you? Is it? Okay. All right. Do you know that there are people that like, really like cold weather? I'm not one of them. Okay. All right. But... Uh, we're going to make it through, aren't we? It's going to be good. Hey, I want to introduce you formally to the newest member of our family. And uh, her name is Emery Peyton Ray. And the picture that you see is a picture of her and her mother, Jessica, who is our daughter. And uh, my lovely wife, who is the grandmother of... Isn't it cool to have hip grandmothers? Just really... Cool, hip, cool grandmother. Well, this baby has one, and uh, we're excited to welcome her. She is. She was born on January the 31st. No, uh, December. The, it, that would be back to the future. December 31st, New Year's Eve, and uh, she was the fifth baby born to our family this year, and number seven, if you're keeping score at home, uh, overall. And uh, she's doing great. Uh, she had an infection when she was born. She's still in the hospital. She's down at Medical University, but she's doing really, really well. And uh, they're giving her all kinds of wonderful medicine. And uh, we hope to bring her home sometime this week. So a lot of you have asked, and so that's her. And uh, uh, thanks for caring. We really do appreciate you, uh, uh, your concern. Now, a lot of you have asked, how did we do with the Hope Epidemic? Remember Hope Epidemic? We... You know, we decided together we were going to do something about um, one of the major issues uh, in the world, which is clean water. More people die from dirty water than they do from, you know, any other disease. And we decided we could do something about that. We're going to um, uh, plant uh, water purification systems and wells in various places that we have influence in in the world. And uh, so we asked you to kind of sacrifice, bring in uh, some money at Christmas Eve and you brought in so much we don't have it all counted yet. Uh, it is north of $200,000 already. Unreal. We had an armored truck come in and take all the change. There was 3,200 pounds of change. And we've counted our part, but the banks haven't counted theirs yet. And so what we're going to do is in two weeks, I'm going to give it two weeks, and then we're going to formally tell you some stories as to what's happening there and, and how it's going. But uh, you guys have been generous. Give God a hand. Will you do that? That's just, that's an awesome, awesome deal. All right. Why aren't you dead yet? You know, I Twitter. Some of you... Say, that sounds like a personal problem, you know. Actually, you know, it's kind of it's like texting. It's mass texting and, you know, it's uh, a limit of 140 characters. And in that 140 characters, some people try to entertain, some people try to inform. And, uh, 
I just follow a bunch of people and, and probably, I don't know, it was maybe eight weeks ago, something like that. Uh, Michael Hyatt, who is the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, one of the guys that I follow on Twitter, uh, Twittered basically that title. He said, why aren't you dead yet? And I thought, that's a good question. And so I clicked on his link and it led to a blog that he had. And I read the blog and immediately I thought, I want to investigate that. I want to do a series on the concept. And so we got a hold of Michael and asked him if we could have permission to uh, use his title. We changed it just a little bit and he used his blog and he said he'd be honored if we would. And so what I want to do is I want to kick off the series uh, and read to you what I read and maybe it'll cause some thinking and then, and then I want to jump into what does the Bible say about that particular question. Michael's blog said this. He said, several weeks ago, I had lunch with a friend that I hadn't seen in years. He had just turned 80 years old. His mind was as sharp as ever. He was witty, inquisitive, and focused. He was also a great listener. And when he did speak, wisdom just dripped from his lips like honey. In a point of genuine humility, but uncertainty, he asked me, Mike, do you think I have anything left to contribute? Are my best days over? And then tears began to well up in his eyes. Mike says, I, had, I admit, I, his question caught me off guard. I, I thought to myself, here I'm with one of the wisest men I've ever met. He's a living treasure. I would pay for the privilege of sitting at his feet and listening to his stories. And he's asking me whether or not he has anything left to contribute. I was flabbergasted. I leaned in, grasped his hands with mine, and said, Jimmy, listen carefully to me. Your best days are ahead of you. I'm not saying that just because I like you, and I do like you, but it's because it's the truth, and I can prove it to you. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever thought, I wonder if... My best days are behind me. You know, there's a character in the Bible that really wasn't that old. In fact, he was about 40 years old when he began to ask those questions. His name's Moses. And let me tell you a little bit about his story of how he got to where he was. Maybe you can kind of relate just a little bit or know somebody who can. The story's found in the book of Exodus. Moses was uh, born into a very, very difficult time in the history of Israel. Uh, they are subjects of or slaves to um, Egypt. And, you know, at first that wasn't really all that bad. It wasn't preferable, but it wasn't too terrible. And then things got worse and worse and worse because God blessed His people Israel and they began to multiply and that became a threat to the Egyptian people because how do you keep control you know, of a largely growing group and they're going to actually, Egyptians were going to become a minority in the not too distant future. And so the leader of uh, Egypt, the Pharaoh, the king, I said, we're going to tighten the screws on them. And, and so they began to, to just treat them terribly, terribly poor, but they, uh, poorly, but they, they continued to multiply. And it got so bad at one point that Pharaoh said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to control the population by doing this. We're going to take every brand new Hebrew baby boy and we're going to kill him. 
We're going to throw them into the Nile River. What an incredibly cruel thing to do. Well, shortly after that decree is when Moses was born. Moses' mother, a Hebrew lady and his father, decided that they would hide Moses for as long as they could. And so for the first three months of his life, they hid them in, in their home. But how do you know it's hard to hide three-month-olds? Three-month-olds. Do, do you know that? We, we've got several of them right now. They're, they're very noisy, okay? Wonderful people, but they're very, very noisy. And so at three months old, they knew that they couldn't hide him anymore. It was just a matter of time until someone would find him. And so Moses' mother did what was probably the hardest thing that she had ever done in her life, something that no mother would ever want to do. She made a little basket for him and she made it water-worthy, fixed it up, no doubt with her tears as she did. And she, she placed her little baby into this basket and she took him down and she put him in the reeds of the Nile River. I don't know what she thought would happen to him. She, she was just hoping that it would be better than the alternative of being caught at home and certainly killed. She had no idea, but she went home. So I thought about it as I was reading the story. I thought, I cannot even imagine the emotion she went to, through as she walked home from the river that day. Shortly after that, Pharaoh's daughter came down to the river to bathe. And, and as she was bathing, she heard the cries of a baby. And she went over and she saw him. And, 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 the, and the helpless cries of that little baby went directly into her heart. And at about that same time, Moses' sister, who had not gone home with mom, she had waited by the side of the river to see what was going to happen to Moses, came up to Pharaoh's daughter and, and she said, she recognized that there was a bond beginning there. And she said, would you like me to go and find a Hebrew woman who can nurse this baby until the proper age? Pharaoh's daughter said, yes, could you do that? And so Moses' sister ran home to mom told mom what had happened. I can only imagine what his mother thought. And then, and then she recruited her mother to be paid by Pharaoh's daughter to do the thing that she dreamed of doing anyway. And that's to nurse her little baby boy. And so Moses came back home to live with them for a while until he was weaned. And then they took him back to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. And Moses grew up in the house of Pharaoh and lived the life of the privileged royalty. The Bible says when he was about 40 years old, he decided that he was going to go and visit his own people. And so he went, and and evidently being sheltered by the life of royalty, he hadn't seen how the Israelites, how the Jewish people were treated. And it just, it, it floored him when he saw how cruel the Egyptian people were to him. In fact, he saw one piece of injustice just sent him over the top. He saw an Egyptian man abusing and beating an innocent Jewish young man. And in that moment of passion, in the heat of the moment, Moses did something that changed his life forever, and he wished that he hadn't done it. Have you ever done anything in the heat of the moment that you wish that you hadn't have done? Have you? I have a friend. He's a campus pastor. I won't tell you who he is. His initials are Ron Hamilton. But at one point (laughs) early in our relationship, (laughs) Ron went to the Honda dealer 
because they were giving away free hot dogs and came home with, a, with an accord. <laughs> Have you ever made a financial decision in the heat of the moment? that you go back, and I'm not sure that Ron wishes he wouldn't have, but if you, you go back and you go, I wish that I wouldn't have done that. Maybe it's something that you said in the heat of the moment that you never would have said otherwise. Or maybe you responded on a blog and so it's now there forever, you know, for everybody to see. In the heat of the moment, you made a decision that impacted your future and you wished that you could do it over again. In the heat of the moment, you may have crossed a sexual line that you wish that you wouldn't have. And once you did, you came back again and again. And you know, the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season and sin is pleasurable until it becomes painful. Have you noticed that? And for Moses, it became painful. In fact, let's read his story in Exodus chapter 2 at the moment that we, that we left him. He said, after looking around to make sure that no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. The next day, as Moses was out visiting his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. What are you doing, hitting your neighbor like that, Moses said to the one in the wrong. Who do you think you are, the man replied. Who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Do you plan to kill me as you killed that Egyptian Yesterday, Moses was badly frightened because he realized that everyone knew what he had done. How do you know this? Isn't this a principle? When you think nobody was watching, you can be pretty sure somebody was. And that was the case with Moses. And so in Exodus 2.15, he says, And sure enough, when Pharaoh heard about it, now remember, Pharaoh is his stepfather or grandfather. When Pharaoh heard about it, he gave orders to have Moses arrested and killed. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and escaped to the land of Midian. And when Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well. I want you to imagine how Moses felt. Yesterday, I had everything. Yesterday, I lived in the cradle of comfort. Yesterday, I I received the kind of education that future leaders receive. Yesterday, everywhere I walked, people looked at me with respect. There goes one of the royalty. There goes somebody from Pharaoh's court. Yesterday, that was my life. And today, (laughs) it's gone. Life as I know it is over. My original people don't trust me. My adopted grandfather wants to kill me. I'm in a place where I don't know anyone and I don't know what to do next. This is not how I envision my life to be at 40 years old. Now, you may relate to that. You may be in your 20s or maybe in your 30s and You had a dream of making a difference at one point in your life. Maybe that's why you went to college. Maybe that's why you chose the career that you went into. And now the truth is, you go to work every day, and it's tough to get up in the morning. You wonder, if you didn't show up tomorrow, if anybody would really even care. This isn't what you dreamed of. Do I really make a difference? Are my best days behind me? 
Maybe you made a big bad choice. I mean a big one. And now you've resigned yourself to wearing the big red A, the scarlet letter, the rest of your life. Maybe you lost your job and it doesn't look like anybody needs your skills anymore. Maybe you're one of the college students, the high percentage of college students that are graduating these days and not finding anybody that's that interested in what you studied and what you are and who you are. Or maybe you had a dream relationally. Maybe growing up that you dreamed that one day you would find the love of your life and that you'd settle down and you'd get married and you'd have kids and you'd share a life together. And now you're in your late 30s. And there's nothing on the horizon. And you're asking, is that in the cards for me? Do I have anything left to contribute? Are my best days behind me? Or maybe there was a time when you felt like you were going somewhere spiritually, you know? And now you really don't feel anything. You hear other people talk about, you know, a relationship with God. You hear people talking about they're being led by the Holy Spirit. And you feel nothing. You're even questioning your faith. Does God exist? Maybe in the past you made significant investments in God's kingdom. You were a giver. You were generous. And now because of the economy and some of the things that you found yourself in, you you can't contribute anything you feel like. In fact, you feel like you're on the other end of the scale and people have to help you. And you're asking yourself, do I have anything left to give? Are my best days behind me? Well, see, here's what I know about Moses. At 40 years old, sitting down by a well and wondering what's next. Here's what I know about Moses. He wasn't dead yet. (laughs) And neither are you. You may be old. You may be sick. You may be divorced. Your kids may not be speaking to you. (laughs) That's a good thing sometimes. You may be out of work. You may be broke. You may be discouraged. But here's what I know, gang. You're not dead yet. And that's proof that you still have not completed what you were put on earth to do. In this series for the next four weeks, what I want to do is I want to pursue that question. Why aren't you dead yet? I want to dig into it. I want to look at it. And I I want to argue with you and hopefully I want to give you some hope for what God has in store for you. Today, here's what I know. I know three things about everybody in this room and three things about everybody who's watching me or listening to me on a podcast somewhere. And here they are. The first thing I know about you is this, is that God wants to do something significant through you. Don't let that go over your head. God wants to do something significant through you. Now, how do I know that? Because there's clues. We went and saw the movie Sherlock Holmes. Anybody seen that? Pretty cool. And I love a mystery. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of trying to follow along. Sherlock is so good. I'm not going to give it away. Okay? But at the end of the movie... I mean, he's got it figured out. He figures it out all the way through. And at the end of the movie, it all comes together. And then they do one of those little kind of, you know, let's review the movie in short little pictures to show you where the clues were. And I'm going, I wish I would have seen that. How did he see that? Well, how he saw that is he read the script, okay? But he he goes through. And there are all these clues. And he sees the clues. And they're right in front of your nose. And there they are. And he puts it together. And I won't say anything else. 
But there are clues to the statement that I just gave you all through Scripture. God wants to do something significant through you. Look at Jeremiah 29.11. It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you future and a hope. There's a clue. God says, I know the plans. I have plans for you. And they're, they're good plans. And they're plans to give you a future. That means something beyond where you are today. And hope. And the New Testament says it like this, Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's masterpiece. We are God's workmanship. We are the poem of God in the original Greek, poema. We are what God wrote. You are God's masterpiece, it says. And He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? So that we can do the good things that He's planned for us long ago. There's a clue. Acts 13 and verse 36 says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. He was buried with his father's and his body decayed. It says that, that David did God's purpose. Until when? Until he died. <laughs> and then when God's purpose was done for him, he died. And he went on to be with the Lord. Well, see, God has plans for you. And if you're still alive, He's not done yet. In his post, Michael Hyatt refers to a book uh, the Noticer by Andy Andrews. And in, in this book, there's a character uh, called Jones. And Jones is the, uh, he's kind of the epitome of wisdom. He's the personification of wisdom. And there's this uh, person named Willow, a 76-year-old lady who'd given up hope that she had anything left to contribute. And so here's what Jones does. Jones says, no, he, he kind of makes an argument. He kind of presents it like a, a lawyer would. And, uh, if, if then, if then, if then, therefore. And he makes a case and he gives her six reasons why she has something left to contribute. And here they are. Number one, God has a purpose for every single person. I believe that. Number two, you won't die until that purpose is fulfilled. I believe that too. Number three, if you're still alive, then you haven't completed what you were put on earth to do. Number four, if you haven't completed what you were put on earth to do, then your very purpose hasn't been fulfilled. Number five, if your purpose hasn't been fulfilled, then the most important part of your life is still ahead. Think about that. If your purpose hasn't been fulfilled, then the most important part of your life is still ahead. I want you to think about that because I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Number six, you have yet to make your most important contribution. And then Jones says this, he says, if, if the most important part of your life is ahead of you, then even during the worst times, one can be assured that there is more laughter ahead. There's more success to look forward to. There's more children to teach and help. There's more friends to touch and influence. There is proof of hope for more. Well, let's look at Moses. That was certainly true of Moses. Let's go back and pick him up. At 40 years old, he's sitting by a well, in a foreign land, he knows no one. His grandfather wants to kill him. His own people don't trust him. His life's not going anywhere. And he's thinking maybe his best days were behind him. And here's the truth. At that point in his life, 
Moses had not yet made the most significant contributions that he would make on life and to the world. See, if you roll the clock forward, 40 years later, okay, he was at the well. Let's roll the clock forward 40 years later. God has a new assignment for him. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 9. It says, The cries of the people of Israel have reached me, and I have seen how the Egyptians have oppressed them with heavy tasks. And then in verse uh, 10 he says, Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh, and you will lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now we know this part of the story, right? You've seen the movie, you know? Plays every, plays every Easter, you know? Greatest story ever told. And here, Moses, this guy, comes off the backside of the wilderness. And he goes back to Pharaoh. And he says, I'm going to lead Israel. And first he goes to the Israeli people, and, and they agree that he's going to be their leader. And then he goes to Pharaoh, and he faces him down. And you remember the ten plagues. Remember that? God sends ten plagues. And finally on the last one... Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt and he miraculously opens this river and they all go through and the Egyptians come and they're all drowned in the river and then Moses walks them around and they complain and gripe. And then Moses goes up on top of a mountain and he gets a tablet and the tablet has what on it? Ten Commandments. And he comes down and he gives them the commandments. And we know to this day that Moses is known as one of the greatest leaders that the world has ever known. He's also called the most humble man that ever lived. That's what we remember Moses for. And that hadn't happened yet. Chances are The thing, listen to me, the thing that you will be remembered for hasn't even happened yet. God wants to do something significant through you. Second thing I know is this. There will always be excuses for why God can't use you. (laughs) Moses has some great ones. Let's look at this. Exodus 3.11. God says, I'm sending you. Moses says, but who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Moses asked God. (laughs) Think about this. God says, I'm sending you. Moses said, who am I? God, let me remind you of history here in just a minute. God, I don't want to, you know, kind of get out of line, but Pharaoh's my grandpa and he's got a contract out on my life. If I go back, I'm probably going to get killed. I'm probably not the best guy for you to use. Swing and a miss, but good try. Good try, God. I still love you. Okay? But I'm probably not the best guy. And then he goes on and he says, and how can you expect me to leave the Israelites out of Egypt? God, let, let me remind you this. I know it's been a while. been 40 years. But they don't trust me. I was raised in Pharaoh's court. They saw me doing the deal with the... And nobody trusts me, God. You want me to lead Israel? It'd be like saying, I've been a lifelong Gamecock. Now you want me to coach Clemson? It makes no sense. Verse 10, I love this one. Moses pleaded with the Lord, Lord, I'm just not a good speaker. I never have been and I'm not now. Even after you've spoken to me, I'm clumsy with words. 
Have you, have, have you ever felt like God made a mistake when He called you? Huh? Have you? Maybe, it, I don't know what it happened to be to, to do, you know, but you feel like God made a mistake. I, I know I did. I remember when I began to have feelings inside that God may w- want to use me to do what I'm doing today, to be a pastor. But in order to be a pastor, you've got to speak. And I've told you guys before, this is, it, yours truly flunked every speech class I've ever been a part of. And I can remember my first sermon. My dad had me preach in his church. And I studied and I studied and I studied. I had pages of notes. And I got up behind this big pulpit. You know, we used to have these big pulpits. You ever been in a church with a big pulpit? And I was glad for the pulpit because my knees were having fellowship with one another. It was like, you know, I'm holding on to this thing so I won't fall down or whatever. And I started to speak. And man, I had notes and notes and notes. And six minutes later, I'm done. wasn't good okay wasn't good and so then my dad got my uncle to have me speak my uncle pastored a church i'll never forget doing that went to my uncle's church and i did better it's about 15 minutes and uh, and when i was done I'll never forget my uncle got up after i was done and he re-preached my message to the people it was like nice try okay Here's what he meant to say, and let's worship the Lord together, you know. And I mean, it was just horrid. And yet I'm feeling like God is leading me to do this. And it's not what I wanted to do. It's not what I grew up to do. You know, it's not just a series of things. We won't go through all that. But so I went to a college professor, and I just poured out my heart. I said, you know, I'm thinking this, I'm feeling this, and I think God's made a mistake here. Either it's not God, bad burritos, whatever, you know, but it won't go away. But if it's God, I mean, why would He do this? I feel like God's made a mistake when He's called me. This wise professor says to me, he says, you know, God doesn't make mistakes. And he said, I believe that God has called you. And you need to trust God with this one. There's probably a group of people somewhere that will be able to get something out of what you've got to say. They'll relate to your weird sense of humor. And there's people... Don't get your hopes up. It's probably not very many, okay? But I thought God had made a mistake. We all do. Maybe it's, you know, when you're going to step up and, you know, lead a small group or lead your family in, in devotions or maybe it's taking a leadership position, you know, at work or wherever it happens to be or working with kids. And you feel like, especially after you, you know, swing and miss a few times, you feel like that God made a mistake. Moses felt that way. From Moses' vantage point, he assumed that he was meant to live an average life. In fact, average might have been a step up for him. And God had designed him for significance. We're at the first part of the year when we start to dream dreams. It's just naturally built in us. And some of us are skeptical. And some of us have been through all kinds of things. And we wonder if we ought to even dream. And some of us, our dreams are average. And God has created us for significance. There will always be excuses why God can't use you. Here's here's some excuses. I'm too young. I'm too young. I'm too inexperienced. I, I can't do the thing that I feel like God's calling me to do. Young people change the world all the time. 
Bill Gates was 20 years old when he created Microsoft. Mark Zuckerberg was 20 years old when he founded Facebook. I think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was probably 13 to 15 years old when the angel appeared to her and said, God wants to do something significant through you. And what did she say? I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me as you have spoken. You know, if a little girl can respond that way to the call of God, so can you, no matter how young you are. Some people say, well, I'm too old. I'm too old. In fact, when God actually called Moses, he was 80 years old. I think of Abraham and Sarah who were too old to have children. God used them anyway. I think of Caleb in the Old Testament. I love him. He was 85 years old. God had a new assignment and Caleb said, give me this mountain. Listen, I'll take this one by myself. He's a hero to me. I think of Simeon in the Christmas story, an old man that God had said to him, you know what? You're not going to die until something significant happens to you. You're going to see the Christ. So I imagine every day Simeon got up and he knew that God had something for him. Significant. Why? Because he wasn't dead yet. And he trusted God. God had made that promise. Guess what? If you're not dead yet, I don't care how old you are, God's not done with you. Sometimes we say we're too broken. We're too broken. God can't use me. I'm too, you know, too broken. I've done too many things or disqualified myself or whatever. I think of Samson. (laughs) Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. You know, in the Bible, that's kind of the hall of fame, the hall of faith. Samson made the hall of faith along with a lot of really cool people that did great things. And you got Samson and he doesn't have the street creds for it. He really doesn't. Because if you look at Samson's life, he marries poorly. He seems to have a sexual addiction. He's a classic underachiever. And yet, in the last act of his life, he's remembered for it. The most heroic thing where he brings down more Philistines than in all of his entire life put together. God had a purpose for him. I think of a lady in our church named Nancy. When she heard that I was going to do a series on uh, why aren't you dead yet? She wrote me a note and she said, I think I know why I'm not dead yet. And then she told her story. I didn't know her story. It was incredible. I mean, she grew up in a Christian home and went to church and did all those things. And about the time she went to college, she kind of just kind of did her own thing. And she said she got into alcohol at first and then it was drugs and wrong friends and then uh, promiscuity. And uh, at one point she got pregnant, had an abortion. And then uh, she dealt with the, with the uh, guilt feelings of all of that. She got married and burned through her first marriage. Came to a point of wondering what life was all about. And then she found God. She got married again and her husband didn't know the Lord. And they moved here to Charleston. They started coming to Seacoast and he became a believer. And she strengthened in her faith and they began to serve God. And they began to serve in small groups and what have you. And now... Nancy and her husband are elders in this church and she serves young women who are dealing with unexpected pregnancies. And she says in her note to me, I never would have dreamed. If you'd have told me 20 years ago or 30 years ago that God would want to do something significant through me, I'd have said He chose the wrong one. But you know what? Nobody's ever too broken. 
See, how does God respond to Moses' excuses in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11? He said, who makes mouths? I love this. The Lord asked him, well, that would be you. Who makes people so they can speak or not speak? Well, that would be you also. Hear or not hear? Well, that would be God. See or not see? Yeah, that's God. Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and do as I have told you. And I will help you speak well, and I will tell you what to say. So what God does is He shows Moses that his flaws are irrelevant when it comes to serving the purposes of God. See, God's not hindered by our tiny shortcomings, whatever we think that they are. All God needs, listen to me, to do His will is God. That's all He needs is God. And it helps to have someone broken enough to realize that it's not about them. It's just about someone saying, here am I. God, work through me. Here's the third thing that I know about you. I know that God wants to do something significant. I know that there are always excuses. The third thing I know is that there are things that you can do to prepare to be used by God. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9 is... Uh, bar none, my favorite scripture in the entire Bible. I want you to read it out loud if you would. So don't get tired. What, what we do usually when we read out loud is we move our lips. Okay, so let's do that together. In the campuses. So don't get tired of doing what is good. Don't get discouraged and give up. For we will reap a harvest of blessing at the appropriate time. God's got a harvest for you. But you know what? It's real easy to give up before the harvest. I don't know how many times since I've been the pastor at Seacoast for 21 years now, there have been times I wanted to quit. Is that okay to admit? Oh, evidently not. Okay. <laughs> Wife's been wonderful all the time. Every day I just love being your pastor. I do love being your pastor, but there have been times where I wanted to quit. There really have been. And as I look back, every time that I wanted to quit, honestly, this is the truth. Every time I wanted to quit, usually was just before a breakthrough of some kind. The harvest was just right there. Uh, this, uh, just a few weeks ago, I went to Holland as a part of a mission trip. I went to Holland and then to India. I spoke to Holland leaders. And, and while we were in uh, Amsterdam, we went to the... Van Gogh Museum, which was just an incredible thing. I love art. Van Gogh was a Dutch post-impressionist painter. Just in, incredible paintings. Some of them are there. Others are various places around the world. Uh, Van Gogh was self-taught. In fact, he didn't start painting until his late 20s. But here's what happened with him. He died largely and unknown at 37 years old. And how did he die? He died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And as I was going through the uh, museum, and it kind of goes chronologically, and so I'm coming to the last part, and there are notes that are written. He written, wrote some incredible letters to his brother, but there, there are notes that are written in just the last days of his life where he wrote that he felt that he was a failure. In his lifetime, he only sold one painting. He felt that he was a failure. He wrote of his own sense of failure. We say, how could he be a failure? Today, his paintings sell for millions. In fact, two are in the list of the 10 most expensive paintings ever. One of them sold for $71 million. One of them sold for $82 million. That ain't bad. But Van Gogh never grasped his own significance. And he quit too soon. 
before the harvest. You know, the truth is most significant things didn't seem that significant in their own lifetime. God wants to do something significant through you. Eighty years is seldom enough time to measure significance. And so God doesn't tell us to measure significance. All He says is to keep doing good. That's your instructions. To be faithful, to keep doing good. Don't get discouraged. If you aren't dead yet, the harvest is coming. There are good things that you can do while waiting on the significant thing. Christians down through the ages have made habits of good things. Spiritual habits that plow the ground, that sow the ground, that make sure the ground is ready for God to bring the good seed and the good thing. And so I want to challenge you as we end uh, uh, this weekend, three good things that you can do in the next few weeks to prepare for the good, th- the significant stuff that God wants to do through you. Number one, you can fast. We're going to fast together as a church starting at sundown Sunday night, January the 10th. We're going to fast for 21 days. We're not commanding everybody to do it. Some of you are weenies and you probably won't, but that's all right. But <laughs> did he just say that? No, he didn't mean it. He just said it. Um, We're going to fast. It's a great thing. If you want to know about the fast, I'm not going to take time to tell you about it. On your outline sheet, there are a couple of resources there. I'm really looking forward. 21 days. It's going to help us to focus and and to prepare for what God wants to do. Second thing you do is you pray. Is you pray. And I want you to pray no excuse prayers. Say, God, use me. Here am I. I'm not dead. Yet, Lord, I believe that you've got significant things that you want to do through me. Your purposes have not been completed. Uh, on the website, there is actually a prayer focus, a PDF that you can download and uh, looks kind of like this when you get it done. But it's uh, something you can pray for every day during this fast and, and you'll find that on there if it will help you with your prayer life. Third thing you do is watch for signs that God is at work. In Moses' life, in verse 4 of Exodus 3, it says, When the Lord saw that he had caught Moses' attention, God called him from a burning bush. Moses, Moses, he said. Here am I, Moses replied. For Moses, God got his attention for the significant thing and the assignment through a burning bush. I don't know what it will be for you. I don't know what your burning bush is. That's not important. What's important is your response that says, here am I. So what about you? How do you respond to the truth of God's Word? Do you believe that God wants to do something significant through you? Or are you afraid that your best days are behind? Like Moses, our fears say less about God, more about us. It says that we don't trust Him. And maybe the first step for you this weekend is just to tell God, you know what? About all I can do is trust. Will you help me to do that? God, I trust you with my life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. For your word. I thank you for hope. Now that you have plans for us, and there are plans that are good, and they give us a future, and they're bathed in hope. You're the author of hope. And God, I just pray this weekend that as we take these few moments to seek you, that we would. Open our hearts to just trust that you're a God that has hope. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.